Christ Church. Turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, and get them opened up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, typically, I'll have verses on the screen behind me, but not for today. And so today, you're going to need to use your Bibles and pay close attention. I opted not to create any of the slides for this week simply for the fact that I, I had the opportunity to take off for a few days and go see my family that's still up in Kansas. And so Thursday morning, I got up at 2.30 in the morning so I could hit the road and get out of here. Uh, drove the 560 miles to go and to be with them. Had a wonderful time with all of them. And drove that 560 long miles this time coming back. Uh, got here uh, last night. Uh, got some rest ready for today. I'm excited to let you know that if everything still stays on track, uh, that my whole family will be here next weekend to worship with us. And so I say our whole family, that's everybody that's currently in the United States, as their oldest son is in Africa, so he will not be here with the crew, but everyone else should be here. So I'm excited for you all uh, to be able to get to see them and to meet them for a little bit. And so I'd ask that you just be in prayer for them as they should be hitting the road uh, sometime on Friday to take that drive down here. Now, with that being said, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning, which I think is one of the most meaningful descriptions of the church that we can find in Scripture. I want to begin by reading verse number 12 and 13. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So here we have the human body as, as a picture of Christ and his church. I love this picture because it is both practical and descriptive. The human body is one organism. It's one being that represents one life. Yes, it has many parts that compose it. However, despite its many parts, it's still one organic organism. And so it is with Christ and the church. The Holy Spirit baptizes the believer into one body, that is, the body of Christ himself. But you understand that this is a very powerful concept for us to take hold of. The fact that we are baptized or immersed into the death of Jesus Christ. What that means is that God actually counts us as in Christ. In other words, God looks at us and views us as, as having already died in Jesus Christ. Not only have we been baptized or immersed into the, through the death of Jesus, we've also been baptized and immersed into the resurrection of our Lord. And so uh, the concept is that God sees us in Christ in order that he can approve and accept us. We see the language like in Colossians, it says that we are hidden in Christ, which means as God looks down upon us, he doesn't just see us as an individual, those of us that put our faith and trust in Jesus, he looks down and we are hidden in Christ, which means he sees his son. And so we've been accepted and approved. We are baptized and immersed into the death and the resurrection 
of our Lord. Notice the, the fact that's at the end of verse number 13. And in the verse number 13 says that we were made to drink from one spirit. That means that the, the Holy Spirit has entered into our lives. If you're a child of God, then you possess the Holy Spirit within you. We need to understand that. It tells us this truth throughout scriptures. In places like Romans chapter 8, verse number 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Then in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 16, it says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And then one more place we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We have been bought and purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in him and you express and declare your trust in Jesus, then what he does is he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think a lot of times we don't understand what that means or what that looks like. And, and sometimes in Baptist circles, you begin to talk about the gifting of the Holy Spirit, and it just kind of makes people uncomfortable. And I don't understand why it wouldn't make any of us uncomfortable. It's a beautiful blessing that we have. Jesus talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, keep your place there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll come back to it. But, but turn with me back to John. John chapter 14. I want to show you some of the places where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. In, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells us of the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'll begin reading in verse number 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has uh, my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to the Lord, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And, and the word that uh, you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here, he, Jesus is just laying out the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
And he's saying, look, something special, something unique is coming. And then if you just look to a page, maybe to your right, go to John chapter 16. We see the promise of the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. Now we see the purpose of the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. Chapter 16, beginning in verse number 7. It says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take whatever is mine and declare it to you. So we have the promise of the Holy Spirit in, in chapter 14. We see some of the purpose of the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. Purpose like he's going to convict the world of sin and, and judgment. Not only is he going to bring conviction, he's going to give guidance into the truth. So he convicts, he guides, and ultimately he glorifies our Heavenly Father. So Jesus had a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, the promise, the purpose. And then look at Acts chapter 1. Just go a couple more pages. Acts chapter 1. Following his resurrection, notice what Jesus had to say about the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. Beginning in verse number 3. He said he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart for, to, from Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's still preparing them for the gift that's to come. And then in verse number 6, he says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And I love verse number 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's still talking about the, the glorious reality of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. And Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, you'll receive power. The power which will enable you to carry out the purpose that God has called you to. And then ultimately, 
you can read through Acts chapter 2, and there you'll see how the promise was fulfilled. Acts chapter 2, I think uh, as we see the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, launched the greatest movement ever known to humanity, and that movement is Christianity itself. To understand, there's a great distinction of how the Holy Spirit operated prior to the day of Pentecost and after. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that there were times where God called a particular person to a particular work. And as God called particular individuals for specific assignments, then God would enable or gift them with the Holy Spirit that would empower them to carry out the task that was set before them, which is the spiritual truth that God always equips his people to do the work of ministry. Now, the subtle but yet dynamic distinction of uh, pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost is the reality that since the day of Pentecost, every believer is now called and gifted by the Holy Spirit. It's no longer reserved to particular people in particular places at particular times. Now, all are called and gifted by the Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost was all about. The fact of the matter, God expects every believer to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only does God expect us to be a witness, God equips us so that we can carry out the expectation that he has for us. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's look a little bit more about what the, the body of Christ looks like. We continue reading in verse number 14. It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I think the reality is that some members in the Corinthian church were experiencing what some of us experience today. Some of the members of the church that Paul was addressing this letter to were feeling a little insignificant. They felt as though they were unimportant or even inadequate. Maybe they they felt as though they were less capable or less able in comparison to other people that were among them. I want you to realize that those thoughts and feelings then and those type of thinking and feeling today It is completely untrue. Anyone who belongs to the Father is important. Everyone who belongs to the Father is significant. Each person who belongs to Christ has a particular gift and a function to which they're to carry out within the body of Christ. So every person is necessary. A foot 
may not be a, as gifted at handling things, but the foot is still part of the body. Every person is necessary. Every person has an essential function that they're supposed to carry out. Our eyes, our ears, our nose all have specific functions, and yet none of them can do what the other one can do. And this is important to understand because each one of us, as a member of the body of Christ, we can only do what we can do. But we can't do what someone else has been called and gifted to do. So, so uh, when, when we don't serve in our giftedness, if we don't embrace God's calling on our lives and recognize that the Holy Spirit has equipped us to do ministry on behalf of our Father, if we don't pursue that, if we're not engaged with that, then we're literally handicapping the church. And the church isn't as effective as reaching its potential and having the impact on the community as it can be if its members aren't all serving as they've been called and equipped to do. Sometimes there'll be some that feel as though uh, they're not as important or significant as other people. And that's just wrong thinking. In fact, look at the text as it continues in verse number 21. It says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Here in these two verses, we see a sharp rebuke for those who tend to dominate or impose their will upon the church. One person's own desire, one person's own preference should never be forced upon everyone else. Every member is significant. Every member is important. And too often... There are some that feel as though they're not as important as others within the church. They feel as though their gifts or their contributions are not as significant as others. And this simply is not true. The average person who serves behind the scenes and never in front of the church is much more essential to the work of the gospel than they're given credit for. We gather in here week after week, and I have the, the, the blessing to be in front of you every week. But there's so much that happens that we don't even recognize a lot. I can't do what I do as effectively if we don't have the right people in our sound booth. Because who's going to be able to hear me? Who's going to be able to follow along? Would I have the the, the, the scriptures and the text and the notes on the screen. Who's going to be looking after our, our babies in the nursery? The people that are behind us, in the prayer warriors. I mean, the, the people who aren't in front of the church constantly or consistently, or, or consistently aren't necessarily less important than those that you always see in front of the church. I would argue that they're more important than those that you see all the time. Every person has function. If you're a child of God, 
then you have the Holy Spirit within you. And with the Holy Spirit comes the power to carry out the task that he's called you to do. And so, again, the major emphasis is that each person who belongs to Christ is significant and important. Everyone's important. That's why it goes on in verse number 23. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so verse number 24 says that God has composed the body. That word composed means to mix or, or to combine or, or blend together. And so God has arranged this church in such a way that he has mixed, combined, and blended us together so that one person's gift is not any greater than somebody else's. But we're equal. We're all important. We're all necessary and needed. So don't misunderstand the importance that everyone has. So the honorable are not necessarily those that stand before the church. Often the most honorable are those that are never seen, who use their gift and who function within the church with little or no attention being placed upon them. In fact, I wanted you to turn with me, go back to uh, Romans chapter 12. And here in Romans chapter 12, it's a beautiful companion text uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, let me just read a few verses, uh, beginning in verse number 3. It says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, it's the same language, same type of illustration that, that Paul is using, and he says, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I'd underline that. Individually members one of another. I'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, so, so this passage complements what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and the fact that we need each other. He, here's the thing that might be difficult for us to grasp, but we also need to make sure that we allow the scriptures to guide and to direct us in this truth. And that truth is that your gift was not given to you for you. 
the Bible teaches that spiritual gifts were given to us, but for the benefit of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 7, says that our gifts were given for the common good. So your gift was given to you for others. They weren't given for you and your enjoyment, but they were given to you, for you, to serve one another for the benefit of others. So we have different gifts. We have different needs. And, and when I read in Romans chapter 12 that we are individually members one of another. One of another. Mem- meaning that we belong to each other. If you're a child of God, then we're connected by faith and that we are one. We're one. One family, one body, one organism. And so the reality is that your gifts aren't yours, they're mine. And my gifts don't just belong to me, they belong to you. And God has made the DNA of this church to be supernaturally infused with all of our gifts. It is not a coincidence that you are here. God brought us together. He combined us. He mixed us together. Because each one of us has a particular gift that can be used for his glory. And it's going to take all of us working together for us to be completely effective in doing what God's called us to do. Everybody's got to be engaged. Everyone has to be involved. It's never reached the time where you get to just sit back and let the next generation take over. Let me tell you, when you're released from service, you're released to serve when you're dead. When you're done. Then you'll know your service is complete. Until then, as long as you draw breath, and you're a child of God, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, you're called to serve. There will be times when that that service will change and transition from one ministry to another, but there's no retirement from Christian service. The only retirement, like I said, is death. Look around. We're not dead yet. Thank you. So we all have a purpose. And the truth of the matter is, God doesn't need any of us. But he chooses to use us. Not only does he choose to use us, he then equips us to be used by him. Oh, I strongly believe that your neighborhood needs you. That this community needs you. Oh, I strongly believe that this church needs you. Not because we need you per se. It's because we need God. And God in his wisdom and in his divine plan has decided that he will empower his children with the spiritual gift 
so that we would serve one another in love. Now, do we all have the same gifts? No. Is any one of our gifts greater than another gift? No. One person knows the answer. No. No. It's not. That's why he keeps on saying, let's finish it out. Verse um, 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Now, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? I'm giving the answer. No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But then he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. He said, I'm going to show you a way that surpasses all of these gifts combined. Now some of our teaching gets this wrong. And I think I got it right, so I'm going to tell you what I think it is. When it says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, what is the gift that he's speaking about? Was it one of the ones that he just mentioned in the graph? No, not at all. What is the higher gift? The higher gift is told to us in the very next chapter. Contrary to how we typically use 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we usually, you know, use that in wedding ceremonies, this isn't a, a, a chapter that's given to us about marriage. The higher gifts that we're to desire is told to us, 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Those things will always endure. It says these three, but the greatest of these, love. Love is the highest gift. That's why with that in mind, let's go back and look at the beginning of chapter 13. So we have, you know, the gifting. We're all wired and we all have some service to do in chapter 12. But let's earnestly desire the higher gift. What's the higher gift? Told to us at the end of chapter 13. The higher gift is love. Now go back to the beginning of chapter 13. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Why? Love is patient. And kind, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. <laughs> I had a funny story that I'm going to move on. Uh, verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, here we go, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. 
As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So here's how I wrap it up with this thought. And that is our spiritual gifts are temporary tools for us to use in reaching and ministering to the lost and to the needy of this world. But those tools must all be used with love. Love. Love is the greatest gift that we should strive for. And if we're all striving for love, and then in love serving one another, then this church will become effective in reaching our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Now, what do we do? Where do we go from here? Let me just challenge you to consider what is your current area of service within the church? What ministry are you engaged with? Are you active in? Are you, I'll ask you this way, are you currently serving under the gifting and the empowering of the Holy Spirit? What does that look like for you? Are you serving? If you're not currently serving, will you consider starting? Will you prayerfully consider and ask our Father, God, where is it that you want me to engage in? What is it that you have empowered me with, and how can I use that gift to further the kingdom? So do you know where you're serving, what your gifting is? And then if you don't, will you truly seek to discover and to find? Let's pray. Father, help us. And in this moment, let me just ask you, the church, how many of you would be honest enough to say, well, pastor, I'm not really using my spiritual gifts in the way that I realize I should be. Maybe it's because I don't really know what I'm gifted to do. Or maybe it's because I do know what I'm gifted to do. I'm just for whatever reason, whatever circumstance, I'm just not pursuing it. If that should describe you, would you just raise your hand and say, pray for me. Raise them up high. Don't be ashamed. Just say, pray for me as I seek to discover how God has gifted me and where I can serve. All right, go ahead and lower them down. How many of you know how you've been wired and how you've been gifted? You know what you've been called to do but you're just not engaged. And you know it. And you're like, man, I, I need to stop. I want to change. If that's you, raise your hand. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt what your gifting is, but you're not doing it today. All right. Father, help us. 
in this moment, may your spirit move among us, fulfilling one of his purposes to bring conviction into our lives. Help us to understand what it is that you've called us to do. And may we know that the strength of this church is directly connected to the effectiveness and the faithfulness of its people knowing and loving and serving you. May this be a strong church. May we seek to discover how we've been wired, how we've been equipped to serve you. Be with us in this time of invitation. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Church, do something just a little bit different.